This episode of Armchair Explorer is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. With seven drive modes, the Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. And epic journeys is what we're all about. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hey guys, welcome to the Armchair Explorer, where the world's greatest adventurers tell their best story from the road. I'm Aaron Miller, I'm a travel writer, and this week we are going on a journey that will take us from the shamans of the Amazon and the Inuits of the Arctic to the freedom fighters of West Papua and beyond. We are seeking wildness and we are in for one hell of a ride. Are you ready? Let's go. This week, we have one of my heroes on the show. Jay Griffith is quite simply the most beautiful nature writer I have ever read, and she will be taking us on the journey that made her name. The book of this adventure is called Wild and Elemental Journey. She spent seven years and all her savings traveling the world to research and write it. And what I love about it, apart from the exquisite lyricality of her prose, is the way she approached it. The book is split up into five sections, earth, ice, water, fire, and air, with a little semicolon chapter at the end called mind, which brings it all together. Each element she lived with and traveled among the indigenous people who have made that element their home, exploring how those landscapes shaped who they are and how they see the world. But through that journey into wildness, she also became a staunch defender of it. And her latest book, Why Rebel, is a kind of poetic call to arms that I think all of us in this community will really resonate with. Unlike similar books, this isn't a scientific argument for conservation. It's more like a meditation on the wonder of the living world and a call for us to reconnect and fall in love with it. So please do check out both books, Wild, which is the story we're hearing a little bit of today, and Why Rebel, which is ultimately where that book led her and how similar experiences might inspire a rebellion in you too. I'll link to them in the episode page of the website or just head over to jgriffiths.com to find out more. So we're just about to get started, but before we do, I'd love to connect with you. The social media is at Armchair Explorer Podcast across Instagram and Facebook. You can sign up to the newsletter at armchair-explorer.com. That's really fun. And if you're a fan of the show and want to get ad-free episodes and membership to our Explorers community with exclusive travel vouchers delivered direct to your inbox every month, then please buy me a pint. For less than the cost of a single frothy beverage, you can become a patron of the show, which comes with all those benefits and more. The link is in the show notes, website, or head to patreon.com forward slash armchair explorer podcast. I would be so grateful for anything that you can do. It takes about one whole week for me to produce a show. The sponsorship covers my costs, but not my time. If you're enjoying it and think that two shows is worth five bucks a month, then you are a legend, and I am waiting for you at the bar. But for now, back to the story, because our adventure is about to begin. Get ready for an elemental journey into the heart of wildness itself. 
like so many people, I grew up in quite a, quote, civilised kind of place. It felt quite tame. It always felt like the raw stuff of life was happening somewhere else. And I missed it. And I just had this feeling of like, yeah, there is, there's something which calls, you know, like Jack London, obviously, and many other people call it the call of the wild, but it's not like the wild is beyond us and calling to us. It's almost like we are experiencing the wildness within ourselves. It was like, you know, what I've called in the book, the feral angel, and it demands that you do one thing, which is take flight, put your boots on, go and find what it is in the world that matches that wildness in yourself. I felt its urgent demand in the blood. That's how she starts the book. I felt its urgent demand in the blood. And I'll be quoting the book a lot because her writing is beautiful and sings with the rhythm of wildness itself. That's a demand that we all know, whether it's called clearly, shouted from the mountaintops or whispered in our ears. Something there is that doesn't love a wall, she quotes Robert Frost. Something in us, she writes, that detests the tepid world of net curtains, the chloroform world where human nature is well-schooled and tamed from childhood on, where the radiators are permanently on mild and the windows are permanently closed. The longing stayed with her and it weighed heavy. The feral angel would not leave her side. But she didn't know how to answer its call. And then she was thrown a lifeline. When I was younger, for years as a child and growing up, I had that feeling of a kind of thirst for wildness, a hunger for the mountains. And then very specifically, when I was in my 20s, I got a very severe episode of depression. And that is the right word, you know. I, I was feeling quite suicidal and I couldn't shake it off. There was nothing that I could do and I had been feeling like that for some months. And then somebody that I knew who's an anthropologist had phoned me up. He knew my work and I knew his and he phoned me up and said that he was going to be going to the Peruvian Amazon to meet shamans that he knew there. And he was talking about ayahuasca, which is this very important shamanic medicine. And he said, did I want to go with him because it could be used as a treatment for depression? And it was one of those invitations where sometimes in your life you can be asked something and you know immediately how enormous it is. You know that it's a lifeline to your psyche. And when he said that, I said, yes, yes, immediately. And he said, well, it's a big trip. It's like, you know, do you need some time to think about it? And I said, no, I know right now that's what I need to do. She flew to Lima in Peru and then took a small plane deep into the Amazon and then a car and then a boat and finally a small dugout canoe traveling upriver until she reached the shaman's village. Here she would feel the earth, her first element for the first time. The Amazon stinging, itching, stroking you with velvet as she describes it. And she would taste it too. Ayahuasca is a powerful hallucinogenic which has been used as plant medicine by the indigenous people of the Amazon for thousands of years. It is said it can show you your path. It can reveal a kind of map of your life that will help you find your way and lead you to a new beginning like sunlight 
glittering through dappled leaves, illuminating the darkness of the jungle floor. The first time that I took it, it was a very strange experience of kind of almost like seeing a sort of horrible kind of cartoonish version of a cityscape. It was the exact opposite of what I thought would happen. But I stuck with it and spent some days with the shamans there. And so I was able to take it several times. And what I started to feel was an absolutely mind-changing and life-changing sense of being so much a part of the living world, of the natural world, in the sense of I, the ego, was utterly unimportant. And not in a bad way, just that life is what matters. And it comes through an ant or a human or a, a you know, twisted liana. But the point is that it's the life spirit which is sacred. It was also an experience of being shown the kind of path in my life. It's one of the many, many things, extremely subtle, complex things that people talk about with that medicine, which is that it can show you your way. And I had felt so lost in depression. And then suddenly, what it felt like was being given this kind of sense that if I am a writer, that my most crucial way of being in service is to write about the living world, to give voice in human language to all those things that have no voice, and also to try and almost reinterpret ways of thinking which I was so versed in as a Westerner and as an overeducated Westerner, but ways of thinking which are, you know, how animals might perceive things. And also not just being with the shamans, but understanding from the way they acted, the way they sang, the way they explained things, that theirs was an entire way of knowing, which is really profound and really important. So it was a whole combination of the shamans, the forest, the animals, and the medicine. And it was a pivotal, or perhaps the pivotal moment in my life. And I wouldn't have changed it for anything. She stayed in the Amazon for months, learning the language of the forest, trying to see it through the eyes of the indigenous people she traveled with. And there were many adventures. She spent weeks on the Rio Maranon, traveling upriver with an Aguaruna woman, visiting remote communities, being shown their cave of bones where their ancestors lie. She trekked through the jungle for weeks on end, visiting shamans, taking that plant medicine. And it worked. As her path was revealed, her purpose to give voice in human language to all those things that have no voice, her depression lifted. Her journey had already begun. She took a plane to Nunavut in the far north of Canada, travelling from southern Baffin Island up to Pond Inlet in the north, and then to the remote Inuit communities that live in the islands beyond. From earth to ice. And now she found herself in a frozen world. I had such a sense of, like, perhaps this is going to be the only time in my life when I can experience what it's actually like to be a total animal in the total ice. And so I thought, yes, what would it be like just to be alone and out in the ice? So I walked out of the community and there were polar bears around and it isn't safe. 
And then what I felt like, which I hadn't realised in advance, I had no idea I'd feel like this, was I thought, so if I want to experience what it's like to be an animal in the Arctic, a small, vulnerable female animal, I was to take my clothes off. So I did. It was wanting to feel absolutely raw, like raw in spirit and raw in body. And I'm quite small and I'm quite thin. And for somebody like me, to take my clothes off in the Arctic, what I didn't realize was quite how little time you have before you get so cold that you cannot put your clothes back on. So then it did become slightly comical because I had that sense for a flash of a moment. I had the absolute experience of, yeah, I'm just an animal. I'm just a little vulnerable, cold prey animal. And I'm so glad to have that in, you know, within me because those experiences will always stay within us when we do something like that. And just as, just as, I just kind of thought, that's it, I have it, I have it. So I've got it in the bag. And then I thought, oh, quick, 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 close on. And then I realized my hands were so frozen, I could put my clothes And I was just kind of like trying to think, what can I, like, what is the fastest way that I can put something on enough that doesn't involve zips and buttons and things like that and yeah and then just picked up what I couldn't put on and just ran. That is dedication to your art. Getting naked in sub-zero temperatures in polar bear country at the time of year when they're at their hungriest knowing that they can sneak up to you completely silently and invisibly in the pure whiteout that is surrounding you on all sides is another level of artistic commitment. But you can kind of understand it. I wanted to walk beyond the human horizon, she writes, to feel this world fully as an animal, as the animal I am. And this frozen world was intoxicating for her. Ice is an artist, generous with its sculptures, she says. What might have appeared as a desolate wasteland, devoid of life and colour, through the eyes of the Inuit became a wilderness infused with stories and language and signs. Here, speaking to elders by the fire, she realized that wilderness is not just landscape, it is knowledgescape too. The Inuit famously have dozens of words for snow. Hard snow that turns soft, the best for igloo building. Snow that is iced over on top and won't blow away with the wind, and many, many more. And it is this language which gives shape and detail to the land and the minds of those that can read it. Only someone ignorant of this place, someone lacking knowledge of it, would call it a wasteland. But it is also a hard place to survive. And survive, you must. I was spending a lot of time in communities with people and asking the hunters if I could go with them out on the boats. And quite often they would say, you know, I was too fat. I was too heavy for the boat, or I was too thin, so I get too cold. I kind of got that impression that they didn't think I would cope, and, and I just kept asking. And then one of the hunters did say, come out, and they'll hunt whatever they find. And on that day, it included a seal. And I don't think I've ever been in a situation where my politics was just in a civil war against my emotional and physical self because what happened was 
I found it so upsetting. You know, my body responded, but I nearly fainted. I found it an appalling thing to see. But my politics is completely with them, is that it is not traditional Inuit hunting, which has caused all the problems in the collapse of seal populations or whale populations or any of these things. Their traditional way of hunting should be protected. It should be respected and protected. And yet, in that moment, my body was in a state of near collapse and I thought I would be sick. And afterwards, one of the Inuit people in that community was really angry with me. And I agree with him. I actually agree with him. The only thing I could say is I didn't mean to have that reaction, but it's very painful. And in a way it was like, what well, that was one of the sharpest ways that I've ever seen of realizing the negative impact that environmentalists, and I am an environmentalist, that, you know, that environmentalists like me in the collective can have in a situation like that is that if environmentalists ever start to say that a certain thing is per se wrong without considering the traditions, beliefs and understandings of the indigenous cultures who live in that land, then we're wrong. So it was a terribly, terribly difficult thing. In the end, she went out with the hunters a number of times, and it was always hard. The day after she arrived at the Inuit community of Resolute, the belugas came in. There was a frenzy of activity on the shore. Boats loosened into the ocean. Rifle cracks echoed across the ice. The whale whistled as it died, she writes. A sad sound, only air, just a breath, no articulated sound. Certainly no whale song, just the escaping air in a thin and final surrender. Life reproaching death for striking too soon. But with the reproach, a kind of arctic absolution. We all must live. We all must die. We all must eat. Such is life so long. That's her point, I think. The killing sickens us up close, so we avert our eyes. But the killing here, the way it's done, is actually the kindest, because it's done out of necessity. It is simply nature's way. But in our world, it's the opposite because it is in that refusal to look where the true cruelty resides. Leaving the ice behind, there were many more adventures to come. She lived with the sea gypsies of Indonesia, the Bahu people, whose element is water and who spend their entire life on the ocean. In the fire deserts of Australia, she walked song lines with the Aborigines and felt the freedom of the open bush, but also the captivity of the compounds where so many now live, removed from their land, sick from its absence. And then the last element, air. And in many ways, it would prove to be the most important of all, and the hardest. She was traveling to the highlands of West Papua, and she found song lines there too. This episode of Armchair Explorer is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on Earth. And Pathfinder, that's a pretty cool name, isn't it? Because that's also what this show is all about. Exploring, getting off trail, having adventures, finding your own path 
and living life to the fullest. Sound like you? Yep, sounds like me too. Which is why I'm so excited to partner with Nissan. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has seven drive modes, available intelligent 4x4. It's got the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds. So go ahead and bring all that gear with you and lots more. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder, a vehicle built for adventures everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG-13. West Papua was one of the most important trips to me because of the genocide that's been going on there and because of the way that, in a sense, Papua people are some of the most hurt people in the world, but they are also some of the most gorgeous and funniest people I have ever met in my whole life. Um, but when I was in West Papua, the guides I was with, they would sing the land everywhere. They would sing the journey. They would make a line of the journey and they would sing it and they would extemporize. There was one time when I was with these two young guides, they were about 17, these two young men, and they were, oh, they were so lovely and so high spirited. They were just like, you know, like gorgeous, naughty 17 year olds around the world. And they were singing this song and they were giggling. And I got somebody else to translate it and they said, oh, we were singing this song today. It was, we saw the girls in grass skirts today. Well, hey. So what they were doing was they, in their sense, they had lines that crossed the highlands in West Papua. And they were lines of song. They were song lines. The genocide she speaks of is largely unknown and unreported in the West. It began in 1962 when Indonesia, backed by the US and its allies, invaded West Papua, which is separate from Papua New Guinea, by the way. It's the western half of that island, but far more wild, and it's hardly visited by outsiders. And after they invaded, Indonesia began what has been called a slow-moving genocide of the indigenous population. And the tribes there are still fighting for their freedom today. Bows and arrows against guns and corporate greed. West Papua is rich in mineral wealth. But despite that, they sing. And not just about girls. They sing to the mountains. They sing to light a fire. They sing the paths before them and the journeys ahead. The many weeks that Jay spent trekking in the highlands were filled every moment with song. But although the song lines were joyous... The paths they sung were hard. The extraordinary thing about it is that Papua is a place of such outrageous jungle beauty, the sort of birds of paradise, the you know, the green, but it's also it's laced with paths that are the least pathy paths I have ever trodden on in my whole life because it's like walking on greased glass or something. If there's a log across a river and there are rivers everywhere, the log will be so slippery. Everything is slippery. It's like it's all mud and it's incredibly difficult to navigate. 
And personally, it's like I was so stuck between, on the one hand, I was utterly enchanted, utterly enchanted. And on the other hand, I was struggling so much with just not being able to keep up. And I was, you know, I was reasonably fit, but the strength that you need to walk in mud, through mud, across like, you know, endless streams, there is no flat in the highlands in West Park, but there is no flat. It's all like really steep up or really steep down. But there's no land either. It's kind of, you're sort of like half in the trees, you're half kind of like across the log, you're half clutching a piece of liana. And it's the only place in the whole world where I have ever let somebody else carry my rucksack. Because the guide said to me right at the beginning, they said, you won't be able to carry your own rucksack. And I said, nonsense, I've carried my own rucksack everywhere, point principle. And they said, I'm sorry, they call me Little Mother. They said, I'm sorry, Little Mother. We know you won't be able to carry it. And within about an hour, I was like, yeah, you're right. The highlands of West Papua are one of the few blank spaces left on the map. The height of them is unknown, the territory unknown. But that's also an advantage because although the country is in chains, the mountains are not. Here, there is refuge still. And this is where Jay was walking. They walked from village to village through mud-ridden, impossible paths, feet sinking, weighing heavy with every step. They crossed valley and river. They bushwhacked to mountain summits, machetes chopping the path ahead. They passed hunters with bows and arrows, farmers carrying pigs bound to sticks on their back. Days passed into weeks. Jay grew weaker, more exhausted. I felt I was walking in a dream where your legs don't work and the air is thick sludge, she writes. My head ached with altitude. My legs were bruised and my ankles stabbing with pain. I sank down in the mud in the middle of the path and gulped, Tidak Bisa, I can't do it. It was the first time in the many, many expeditions of her life where she simply couldn't go on. But go on, she must. There were no alternatives. And the thing that got her back to her feet was the singing. It was the people. And they knew how to have fun. I have never known people like that. They could light up the world just with a smile, honest to God. And they light fires everywhere, just bonfires. One time I was with these guys and one of them had climbed a tree after lunch and fallen asleep. And so his friends did what all good friends do, which is that they lit a bonfire at the bottom of the tree. And so he woke up with his face absolutely full of smoke and had to jump out of the tree. And his friends, so-called friends, they knew that that would happen. And so what they did very carefully they knew they would fall over laughing, so what they did very carefully was, before he fell out of the tree, they lay down on the ground, so that when they fell over laughing, they were already lying on the ground. I mean, the, the, you know, powerful people are phenomenal. They are like the sort of human bird of paradise. They are phenomenal and full of joy and laughter and an incredible sense of fashion because what they also had was penis gourds, really big penis gourds. One of the things about West Papua is the greatest item of clothing is the penis gourd. It's fantastic. And basically, you can get penis gourds in all sorts of kind of shapes and sizes. So you can, you know, if you need a useful one, just because you're kind of like going, running from one village to another and you don't want to catch your penis gourd in a piece of ivy, then you can get just like fairly little kind of stout one and that's fine. Or you can get these penis gourds that are like feet long with a feather in the top. They use them to keep 
if they ever have any money, like little banknotes or something like that, and wads of tobacco in the penis cord. It's very useful. And the thing about it is that it's also a brilliant rhetorical device. So when somebody's talking, is that they can stand with their penis cord and just wave it. And there's no flourish like it. I tell you, you cannot get a flourish off anything like you can get a flourish off a penis cord. There is no flourish like the flourish of a penis cord, and if you're not sure what that is, imagine a banana hammock on steroids that's hard and points upwards, not downwards, and some of them reach their chin. And though the days were difficult, the nights were not. In the villages, she would be invited to the men's houses. There is strict segregation of men and women, but as a Westerner, she was treated as an honorary man and spent the nights in these small thatch roof huts. A place of smoke and conversation around the fire, long into the night, as she describes it. And though it was in many ways an environment that was completely alien to her, it didn't feel that way. There are two places in the world, she says, where I have felt immediately at home, with an instant sense of belonging, in the houses of shamans and in these men's houses, where all that matters is firelight and friendship and penis cords, presumably, big. Penis cords. They would waggle them to make a point, but not everyone gets that welcome. And there was one village which, when we got to it, I thought the name of this is really familiar. And a few weeks earlier, I had been in a city in West Papua in Jayapur, and I got very bored. And I realised it was a Sunday, so I thought I might see what the missionaries were up to. And this missionary that I met was talking about how some of her church had been martyred by the Yali people, and I said, "What happened?" And they said, "Well, the Yali people had killed them and eaten them." Yeah, cannibals. They ate the missionaries. But when you hear their side of the story, it's not as simple as that. It was the missionaries, not the tribes, that were the aggressors. I was in this Yali village, and I just said, "Can you tell me what happened with the missionaries? Because you know the story goes around of cannibalism and things like that." And they said, "Yeah, we'll tell you what happened. We will tell you. Is that the missionaries had come into the village? They had terrified the villagers, absolutely terrified them. The villagers had run away from them once and tried to tell the missionaries to leave them alone. The missionaries had pursued them into the forest." The people had run away again. They were so frightened. You know, these people were weird, enormous, white. They were terrifying for the Papuan villages. They didn't know where they'd come from. They didn't know what dangers they were bringing, but they felt that they were in danger, and they were. And so they had killed them. And having killed them in what they absolutely regard as self-defense, they ate them, which is one of the kind of cultural things. This is such a tricky kind of subject because, to some people, it's automatically an evil thing. But cultural context is everything. Jay was curious. What did it taste like? She asked. It tastes a bit like beef. One of the elders replied. One of the missionaries, he said, was too fat and it didn't taste good, so we used him as fire lighters instead. Yeah, and if you think that's horrendous. It is, but like the whale hunts of the Inuit, cultural context is everything. 
I've spent a delightful weekend with cannibals, she writes, and the descendants of head shrinkers is a good friend of mine. But nowhere have I come across any kind of savagery equal to modern warfare. She had walked through earth and fire, felt the naked beauty of ice. She'd submerged into wild water and gasped for mountain air. The elemental journey was almost complete, but there was one part left, and that part was inside us. It is the call of that feral angel, and it came to her at the start of her journey. But like a map, it also showed her the end. In the ceremony with ayahuasca, one of the things that one can experience is in the sense of losing oneself, the power in one's imagination to see, as students would say, the visions. And one of the things that I saw was a jaguar, which is a really important creature in the Amazon. And this jaguar was walking down the high street in Oxford, which is where I went to university. And this jaguar was absolutely furious and it was prowling with this kind of rage. The thing about it was that everybody else was scared of it. What I had felt was that I needed to walk towards it and I needed to be its apprentice. And the more I looked at it and the less scared I felt, but the more I felt its way of seeing was absolutely vital. You know the way that if you gaze at another person or another animal, that in any situation, if you really, really forget yourself and lose yourself in them, you can kind of step towards them. It was like a kind of practice of empathy, but empathy squared. It was like extreme empathy. And in that sense, I just started to feel like, okay, so that's what the Jaguar does when it puts its paw down. It's really quiet, but really strong. So it wouldn't break a twig because its paw could be that gentle. And if it sniffed, it could sniff any direction. It could climb, it could swim. And that sense of actually watching it, learning from it, then crossed over into a feeling that I could feel my own paws, my own whiskers, my own ears, that as if in some way that absolutely wasn't real, it was absolutely metaphoric, but metaphoric to me is not a diminution of reality, it's an augmentation of reality. And so in that sense, what I felt was the power, the sensitivity, the wildness and the rage. And so this Jaguar, which was absolutely of the Amazon, was a way of knowing. What I learned was a way of knowing, which was feral, it was physical, it was bodily, and the way of knowing that I felt I had stepped just an inch towards, which was absolutely furious with the whole mindset of the Western world, which is so arrogant. For all that we know, 
we know nothing that matters. And that kind of sense of this is the knowledge that we need and this is the anger that we need and not an anger to be nasty and spiteful but just an inherent rage of pure protection of life, the living green forest. She became the jaguar, the embodiment of the jungle. She saw as it saw, she felt as it felt. And in that moment of becoming, that moment of pure empathy with the wild, with the jungle itself, she felt its rage and felt its calling, its urgent demand in her blood. From a hunger for life, she writes, I roared myself into being, and now sheer life brimmed me to overflowing. The jaguar was a way of seeing the world. It wasn't a hallucination as we would understand it, not exactly. She calls it a vision, a metaphor, but no less real for that. Because it is in that metaphor, really inside it, embodied, that we learn empathy for the wild. That's why she's the jaguar's apprentice. Because it is only through that empathy, only by seeing the wild through the jaguar's eyes, enchanted and alive, can we truly learn to care. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. One of the things that I wanted to do with the last chapter of the book was to write not so much about wild places but about wild mind and that took me into the territory of comedy and tragedy and actually saying that we have to stay in the world of comedy and I don't mean silly or lighthearted or frivolous or even necessarily funny but the world of comedy which says life must always go on that up it comes from the grass shoots and the shooting stars and the outrageous flamboyant feast of life that is this earth in the cosmos there is nothing like it we have paradise here and it's a paradise that needs us to be sensitive to it and quick to it and to love it. The whole experience of being in the Amazon and the Australian deserts and the Arctic and West Papua and underwater as well, that this thread all through it is life and it's the preciousness of life, the beauty of it and the way that we cannot, cannot take it for granted. It's easy for any of us to kind of get used to a blackbird singing is just what they do. To get used to a snowdrop because they come up every year. To get used to a river and its different voices in different places. The more you look, the more you find in the world. And so if what you're looking for is wildness in life, you will find it more and more and more. What I feel is the exquisite beauty of life and in these times, the terrifying fragility of life. And there is a mantle of responsibility upon us all not to take it for granted and to be willing to stand up for life in all its forms. 
She writes, From shamans in the Amazon, I learned something of how the wastelands of the mind, its dark depressions, could be navigated. And from them, I learned to see the world through feral eyes, through the eyes of a jaguar. From Inuit people in the Arctic, I learned something of the intricate ice and how all landscape is knowledge scape. From whales and dolphins, I learned how much we do not know, the octaves of possibilities, the maybes of the mind. From Aboriginal people in Australia, I learned the belowness of things, how land is heavy with significance and how it sings. From West Papuan people, I learned how freedom is the absolute demand of the human spirit. From indigenous people all over the world, I learned that going out into the wilds is a necessary initiation, and that for young people lost in the wastelands of the psyche, the only medicine is the land. Everywhere, too, I learned of songlines, how people who know and love a land can hold it in mind as music. For Jay, nature is an enlargement of the mind. Our inner worlds are formed by the elements that surround us. We are ice, we are earth and fire and water and air. That is the lesson of the jaguar, and we are all its apprentice, whether we realize it or not. Its urgent demand courses in our blood, its songs ring in our ears, and so with teeth and paw and claw we must heed its call, the call of the feral angel to take flight, to put your boots on and go and find what it is in the world that matches that wildness in yourself. We are the Jaguar's Apprentice. Thank you, Jay. Thank you so much for taking us on this adventure and for the beautiful writing and work you do. She has numerous amazing books. You can find out about all of those at jgriffiths.com. But the two we're shouting about today are Wild and Elemental Journey and Why Rebel. Search them up. You will not be disappointed. On behalf of Jay, I'd also like to mention again the struggle that the people of West Papua are still involved in. They're still fighting for their freedom against a genocide the West has largely ignored. Go to freewestpapua.org to find out more, even if you just post about it and help spread the word. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting the show by buying me a pint. For the cost of a single pint a month, you will get two ad-free shows, membership to our Explorers community, and exclusive travel vouchers delivered direct to your inbox. The sign-up link is on the show notes, the website armchair-explorer.com, or you can go to patreon.com forward slash armchair explorer podcast. Thank you so much for anything you can do. It really does make a huge difference. Caleb Linville did the sound editing for this episode. Thank you, as always, to him. His podcast is called Novel. Check it out. I really like it, and I think you will too. And thank you, most importantly, to all of you for listening and helping to spread this message, our message of love for the outdoors, living life to the full, and celebrating the pure joy of exploring this amazing planet. And that's important because the more that we look for wonder in the world, the more the wonder of the world becomes a part of who we are. Dare to be truly alive. <laughs>